This is a very blustery morning. And the, uh, the bluster has just kicked in somehow in the last hour or so, and I suppose I'm going to add to the bluster, I'm afraid. Uh, so, um, for some reason, for the last week or so, uh, I've been thinking and studying about karma. And I'm going to talk about that a bit uh, and feel like I'm really just scratching the surface here, but uh, lay out some perspectives and some questions. So we've just completed our monthly Bodhisattva ceremony. And that ceremony begins with uh, the avowal of all of our ancient tangled karma and the, the act of confession and repentance uh, and renewal. And the essence of the renewal is the renewal of the Bodhisattva precepts and it's impossible to talk about karma without talking about the precepts. Uh, when we have an ordination ceremony, the ordination or priest ordination, uh, along with the Rakasua robe, we receive a document called Kechimiyaku, bloodline, uh, which leads from Shakyamuni Buddha down through all the, the Indian ancestors and the Chinese ancestors, the Japanese ancestors, down to uh, Suzuki Roshi and Sojin Roshi and to uh, the next generation teacher and to you. And there's a red line that runs like a thread through all of those names and then runs back up to the top. It's circular in, uh, in essence. It runs back up to the top of Shakyamuni Buddha's, Buddha's head. And there's a text at the bottom of the, of the document and that says, the perceptual vein of the ancestors is the one great causal condition of the Buddha way. So it's the precepts, our moral activity, our moral life that runs through the entire tradition and that in fact generates the tradition. And it's also that moral activity, that preceptual activity that uh, determines karma, which determines our circumstance in the world. Um, so this question of karma is also uh, inextricably linked from, with notions of rebirth, which is really difficult matter for us. Uh, I tell the story, I have a new book, by the way, which we'll advertise uh, sooner or later. It's published on Tuesday. It's called Turning Words. And it's Transformative Encounters with Buddhist Teachers. It comes out, uh, Shambhala put it out. 
and one of the stories it talk about um it's a book of stories and one of the stories talks about just hearing Katagiri Roshi at a session uh and you know one evening in his talk he said tomorrow I'm going to tell you all about rebirth and uh, we were really looking forward to getting the the dope on this you know uh and comes the comes next day in lecture and he starts and he kind of rambles on for about five minutes and then kind of throws up his hands and saying i can't talk about this the problem is i believe and you don't <laughs> and uh uh, that's true for many of us. Maybe there, I'm, I'm sure there are people here who, who do believe in rebirth. Um, I think when I asked Sotan Roshi about this, and when, when, when he spoke about it, he said, he would often say, I don't remember. <laughs> you know, which that's a good answer. <laughs> you know, uh, it's like one of those science fiction movies where your your memory gets wiped at the beginning of uh, your next life, so you can't quite recall what what may have happened in a previous uh, in a previous in a previous birth. But anyway, it's difficult, uh, and uh, in the course of uh, I'm going to tell you a. a, a a story, a koan uh, that pertains, and also uh, I'll sing you a song at the end, and then we can entertain questions. But this is a this is a big question for for Dogen as well, uh, and uh, it's interesting because he actually wrote about this koan that I'm going to tell you. He wrote about it in detail in twice once kind of earlier in his life, and then once towards the end of his life uh, in uh, another recension of the Shobogenzo, his Treasury of the True Dharma. And in those two, those two tellings and these two interpretations, he takes completely the opposite view each time. And I'll, I'll tell you a little about that, and you can go investigate it for yourself. It's, it's very interesting. So I'm going to read you case two in the Mumon Khan, which is a very famous and also very complicated case. Uh, and we're not going to be able to go into all the ramifications. But this is uh, the case of Yakucho and the fox, which you probably have heard quite a few times. Uh, and I think that its location in the Mulungkan is, is significant. It's the second case. It's the case that follows uh, uh, Joshu's dog or the Mu koan. So the first case really is talking about uh, is a uh, presentation of Buddha nature. And the second case is a presentation about karma, the absolute and the relative. So it's, it's very, it's, it's important. So let me tell you that, oh, I'm going to say something about Yakujo. So Yakujo uh, is one of the early Tang Dynasty ancestors. Uh, He was a student of, uh, of the great master Baso, or Matsu, and uh, Yakujo was the name of, his, of the mountain, as you'll see in this story. And uh, Yakujo is given credit for kind of the, the creation of the, the Chinese monastic system and the Chinese monastic rule. And he's a he's a, a very major figure. Uh, 
and the whole, I think the Rinzai lineage really descends through him. Uh, and those regulations are still regulations that he, in, in Yakujo's Shingi, those regulations are still pretty much the foundation of our monastic systems. So here's the story. Once Yakujo was delivering some lectures, Zen lectures, and an old man attended who was first unseen by the other monks. At the end of each talk, all the monks left, and so did this old man. One day, he remained after the other monks had gone. And Yakujo asked, asked him, who, who are you? Because he wasn't a member of the regular congregation. The old man replied, I am not a human being, but I was a human being when Kashyapa Buddha preached in the world. Kashyapa Buddha was one of the Buddhas before Shakyamuni Buddha. Uh, and so that's one of those indeterminably long times ago. Uh, I was a Zen master and I lived on this mountain. So he was a, he was an, was also would have been called Yabujo. Really, there's nothing more beautiful than hearing the rain while you're sitting zazen. So he said, I was a Zen master. I lived on this mountain. At one time, one of my young students asked me whether an enlightened person is subject to the law of causation, to the law of cause and effect. I said, uh, is an enlightened person subject to karma? I answered him, the enlightened person is not subject to the law of causation. Uh, which is perhaps the orthodox response of uh, the early Buddhist tradition. Uh, when the Buddha and his disciples were awakened, often the, the way that was described is uh, what must be done has been done. And the, you know, the message is that those beings are no longer subject to cause and effect. Uh, they still have a body. But uh, anyway, that's, uh, that was this old man's answer. Cohen says, for this evidence, evidencing a clinging to absoluteness, I was born, I became born as a fox for several hundred rebirths, and I'm still a fox. Foxes, to be born as a fox is not an auspicious uh, birth. Fox in Japanese tradition, as in, uh, as in uh, indigenous traditions in, uh, in the Americas, Fox is a trickster. Uh, a fox is uh, can be mean and nasty. Uh, a thief, uh, and you know, there's a Sojin was very interested in the the fox cult in Japan, and there's a little fox on his altar which I've left there. Uh, but the, the thing about the fox is it's not like a, uh, the offerings that are made to foxes are not to honor them. The offerings that are made in Japanese tradition to foxes are uh, to propitiate them and like make sure, okay, we're feeding you, so please stay away. Don't muck about in my life. And that's the, that's the kind of reputation that the fox has. So uh, 
I became a fox for 500 rebirths, and I'm still a fox. Will you save me from this condition with your Zen, with a turning word, which is my first encounter with the expression turning word, which I borrowed from this title, and, and let me get out of this fox's body. Now, let me ask you, the old man is asking the new Yakujo, is an enlightened person subject to cause and effect? Yakujo said, the enlightened person does not ignore cause and effect. And at those words, the old man was enlightened, he said, I am emancipated. And he made deep bows. I'm no more a fox, but I have to leave my body in a dwelling place behind the mountain. Please perform my funeral as a, as a, a funeral for a monk. And then he disappeared. The next day, Yakujo gave an order to the chief monk, the head monk of the temple, to prepare and attend the funeral of a monk. And the other monks wondered, they said, well, nobody was in the infirmary and nobody's sick here. Uh, what is this funeral going to be? Who's it going to be for? After dinner, Yakujo led the monks out and around, he led them out and around the mountain. And in a cave with his staff, he poked out corpse of an old fox, and then uh, performed a cremation ceremony. That evening, Yakucho gave a talk to the monks and told this whole story about cause and effect. Let me get to the last part, which bears a whole lecture in itself, but I'll, I'll tell you it, but I'm not going to touch on it that much. Uh, so in congregate in the congregation, there was a uh, promising monk by the name of Obaku. Uh, and uh, Obaku, hearing the story, asked Yakujo, I understand that long time ago, because a certain person gave a wrong Zen answer, he became a fox for 500 rebirths. Now, I was to ask if some modern master has asked many questions and he always gives the right answer, what will become of him? Yakujo said to Obaku, he said, come here and I'll tell you. And uh, Yakujo approached and before Obaku, before Yakujo, Obaku approached, sorry, before Yakucho could reach out and whop him with his stick, Obaku, who was seven feet tall, Obaku was a big guy, seven feet tall, uh, he reached out and slapped Yakujo on the cheek. Uh, and uh, because he knew he was going to get hit if he came close. And Yakujo clapped his hands and laughed. And he said, I thought a barbarian had a red beard. And now I know a barbarian who has a red beard. So what he was saying to Obaku was, the, barbar the red bearded barbarian is, is a way of depicting uh, Bodhidharma, who's sitting back on the wall behind you, yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, what he's saying to Obaku is, uh, you've got the essence of uh, Bodhidharma and is celebrating that. So Mumon's comment is, the enlightened man is not subject. How can this answer 
make the monk a fox. The enlightened man is one with the law of causation. How can this answer make the fox emancipated? To understand clearly, one has to have just one eye. And then Muman offered this verse. Controlled or not controlled. The same dice shows two faces. Not controlled or controlled. Both are grievous error. So in a sense, you could say that the old Yakujo, the old man who became a fox, uh, offers his young monk words that represent the absolute, an absolute position. And one can speculate that that was not the right response for that Dharma moment. That the Dharma moment, uh, each moment of our lives is a different Dharma moment and different Dharma position. And what may be true in one moment, what may be useful in one moment, uh, may not be in another and may in fact be dangerous. Uh, when I was speaking with Lori about this koan yesterday, uh, she reminded me that one of our teachers explained that to come from the position of the so-called absolute without really having in mind, uh, without having embodied uh, the practice and life of the precepts is very dangerous. And we've seen that, we've seen that historically. We've seen that, and sometimes we've seen it in our own life. Uh, so, In the, in the circumstance of the old Yakujo offering a turning word to the young monk, the person who gets turned is the old Yakujo. And he has to bear the circumstance of being reborn for all those years as a fox, which is not a pleasant uh, fate. And yet we can see in this story that at the same time, he has not lost the spark of way-seeking mind. That way-seeking mind is really deeply planted in him. And even in 500 unpleasant rebirths, he still has the wish to be free. He's not lost that. And so he's looking for the turning word that applies to him. The new Yakujo, the historical Yakujo, sees the circumstance and reads it and gives him the word that frees him, frees the, the old man, the fox old man from, uh, from these rebirths. Uh, the funeral of a priest, uh, actually any funeral that we have in a ritual sense, uh, incorporates 
the rebirth of the person who's died in the pure land. So for a lay person, when we have a, a lay person's funeral in the Soto tradition, if that person has not received uh, the precepts, uh, they receive the precepts. Basically, the funeral ceremony for a lay person is an ordination ceremony, which is what the you know uh, what the fox was asking for an ordination, so that upon death you will be reborn in the pure land. And uh, the or the uh, funeral ceremony for a priest is the affirmation of that Dharma position, that uh, having lived out one's life in this, in this realm, uh, one is reborn in the so-called pure land. Now, you may believe in this, you may not believe in this. This is uh, a challenge for all of us. Uh, one thing I would say about my understanding of, of karma, of Buddhist karma, uh, is that uh, we often mistakenly think of karma as just, we can think of it as fate. It's like, uh, oh, if I did this, this is gonna happen inevitably. It's kind of a mechanistic uh, unfolding of our life. That's not it. That's not karma. What was really amazing and new uh, and liberating about Buddhist karma is that it allowed you to determine, the Dharma allows you to determine what your next Dharma position is going to be. In other words, if something happens to you, or there's some circumstance in your life that is difficult or unpleasant, or if you've done something that's harmful to, to someone, then a correct understanding of karma is to allow you to think, okay, what am I gonna do next? How can, how can I offer myself a turning word? irrespective of the circumstance that has unfolded. I remember speaking to a young man who had a Buddhist practice uh, at Stanford. Uh, I was giving a class there and he had a, he had a very uh, difficult stutter. And he came up to me after class and said, you know, what is the, what karma has happened or has, uh, what karma do I carry that, that causes this stutter? And, you know, I said, I, I don't have the slightest idea but I don't think that's the right question. You know, uh, the question is, you know, first of all, look at your circumstance. Yes, you have this, you have this, this, what people would count as a disability, but here you are at Stanford. You know, the question of karma is, where will I make my next step? What will I do next? This is the question of our whole lives. This is everybody's question in this room. And my question, what will I do next? So 
I also want to say that karma in the traditional way is not the only form of causation. This is, you can find, you find conflicting views even in the early, in early Buddhism. There are places in early, in the early Pali sutras where it would be said, the Buddha will supposedly say, you know, everything that happens to you is the result of karma. And there are other places in, in the, in the sutras and in the commentaries where uh, he lays out uh, a range of causations that we experience, of which karma is, is just one. You know, there's, uh, these are called the niyamas, N-I-Y-A-M-A-S. Uh, and uh, one is the constraint of the seasons. Uh, that the seasons unfold is not a question of karma. It's a question of uh, natural science. And similarly, uh, there's bija niyama, which is the constraint of seeds, which means that a seed produces its own kind. So barley seed produces barley, a grass seed produces grass, a human seed produces a human, and they don't produce something else. This is, this is a form of causation that's biologically determined. Uh, and there, there are others, there's, uh, there's causation, there's geological causation. You know, there's no moral, an earthquake is not a moral activity generally. Nowadays, in the age of the Anthropocene, we are doing things that affect actually the planet. So we, you know, we actually are affecting the weather. You know, if we're doing, if we're fracking uh, intensively, we could actually cause earthquakes. But in general, uh, there are other forms of causation which are not about human agency. Causation, as we're talking about here, is about, uh, is determined by uh, volitional action, whether that's conscious or unconscious volitional action. So I would just say that uh, turning back to looking at this uh, fox koan, uh, one way that you can look at this koan, uh, and actually a way that you can look at, uh, at any koan, uh, is similar to kind of instruction that you would get if you're doing certain kinds of dream work, which is imagine yourself, put yourself in the place of, of each character in the koan, of the old man, of the student, of the new Yakajo, of the fox, of Obaku, you know. Uh, what does the world look like from there perspective from their point of view. This is how we train ourselves actually to not be caught on our self-centered point of view, but to do our best to be broadly inclusive of all perspectives, imaginatively. It's an act of imagination because, of course, we can't exactly know what anyone else is doing or thinking. And, you know, it's hard enough to know what we're thinking. Uh, but to, that's an act of imagination. That's, that is a fundamental human capacity, which is marvelous place yourself in those in those positions.
And finally, and I think this is would be would be matter for further investigation. Uh, how do we recognize first that karma is just karma, it's not necessarily my karma. As soon as you own it and put the label of yourself on it, uh, you've, that's already a karmic activity. How do you see cause and effect as simply the unfolding of our interdependent actions? And then that leads to a really difficult and controversial question about uh, is there such a thing as systemic karma? You know, what does it mean? Some of the ills that we see in the world of discrimination and prejudice in of various types uh, are seem to be the enactment uh, of groups of people that may fall on other groups of people. And that may be the case. Nonetheless, whether there is such a thing as systemic karma or not, what I would propose is that every one of us is, is responsible for the workings of the entire world. It's not a question of what group of people you're in or what your identity is. It's like, how do you remake the world that you live in? How do you take complete responsibility for it? Which is very difficult. That's the Bodhisattva vow. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. That is taking complete responsibility for all that happens at the same time. So that's, that's maybe an absolute position. And at the same time, recognizing that uh, we're all in this together, that we're not alone. We have countless sisters and brothers and beings around us who can cooperate. That's a larger vision, a very complex vision of karma. So I just wanted to say before I, I close and sing you a song, uh, if this is interesting to you. Uh, so the two fascicles of Dogen, uh, one is called Daishugyo, the earlier one, uh, great practice. And uh, the position that he takes in great practice is the position that I, that I hinted at was that, that both Yakujos were relating a truth from, from two positions and that to fall into one or to fall into other, to the other is uh, itself an error to to raise one, to raise the uh, the position of an enlightened person not being subject to cause and effect, uh, and then the other position, enlightened person is does not ignore cause and effect. These are both true, according to again as as I was saying, according to the Dharma position in the moment.
and we should attend to that. And later, towards the end of life, his life in a fascicle called uh, Shinjin Inga, which was part of, late in his life, he constructed a 12 fascicle uh, recension of Shobogenzo. And at least some scholars, so that was when he was at Eheji. Uh, it had, I think, it had just been named Eheji, but he was in Echizen province. And he was training novices. And at least some of the scholarly supposition is that the position that he takes there, um, let's see. Uh, do not be unclear about cause and effect. Uh, is evidently the deep belief in cause and effect. And this is how a listener gets rid of bad states. We should not wonder about this and we should not doubt it. So the supposition is that he was, those he was training were not fully immersed in the Dharma yet. And they really needed, what they needed was this message uh, reinforcing moral activity. So I'm going to leave that an open question. And uh, those of you who are interested, uh, you know, investigate. Uh, think about what the circumstances were that uh, that Dogen was proposing in each in each uh, of those different certain different moments. So I'm going to sing you a song, and then we're going to open up. So this is a song that I've rewritten. Uh, it comes from the African African American gospel tradition. I think the first recording that I know of was by uh, many. Blind Willie Johnson, one of the deepest singers of all time, just really, really deep. And then it was also version of this was recorded by the uh, the Staples singers, the Staples family, who are some of my favorites. And the Christian version of this is nobody's fault but mine, uh, and it's about learning the scriptures and, and reading the Bible. And I changed it a little bit. Nobody's fault but mine. Why don't you try that? Nobody's fault but mine. Well, nobody's fault but mine. If I can't see my own true face, it's nobody's fault but mine. I can see the Zen revision here, right? I know right from wrong. Yes, I know right from wrong. If I don't know about cause and effect, it's nobody's fault but mine. Well, nobody's fault but mine. Nobody's fault but mine. If I can't see my own true face, it's nobody's fault but mine. I got trouble in my mind. I got trouble in my mind. If I need, if I deny each, use my brother and deny myself, it's nobody's fault but mine. Nobody's fault but mine. Well, nobody's fault but mine. If I can't see my own true face, it's nobody's fault but mine. There's a wheel in the middle of the air. It's turning in the middle of the air. 
If I'm reborn on that wheel of life, it's nobody's fault but mine. I said nobody's fault but mine. Nobody's fault but mine. If I can't see my own true face, it's nobody's fault but mine. That's the treasure, that's the true dharma. Oh, I'm sorry, yes, thank you. Uh, Raghav was asking, in Muman's comment, he speaks about, uh, let me just read you the line exactly here, because it's interesting. Uh, he says, to, under, to understand clearly, one has to have just one eye. Uh, that one eye is the uh, the true Dharma eye, right? This is, uh, I think that's what he's referring to. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Ken? Hi, Hosan. Hi. Thank you for your talk. You mentioned that the dangers of um, of speaking from an absolute perspective without um, a firm grounding in the relative, I think is what you said. Yes. And, um, leads to dangers. And I wondered if you could just elaborate on that a little bit. Well, I think it's, it's a kind of what we might call spiritual bypass. Um, you know, it's, it's leaping over the, the, the actual circumstances, moving to some position that, uh, you know, for example, uh, the absolute position are, there are no beings, uh, which is something that, you know, it's a, it's something that you read in the Diamond Sutra and in some of the Prajnaparamita literature. Uh, and to take that as the absolute truth, um, what that, that has led in uh, historical times to the justification of killing. If there are no beings, then, you know, and there are no beings that can be killed, then it's okay to kill them. That, that that's an absolute position that's them you know but i think it, it comes down in um kind of finer ways in in aspects of our life does that make sense it does that strikes me as a little bit of to to say that an absolute position is that there are no beings and then to take a knife and kill someone seems like diluted 
it seems like not understanding your own actions. Well, you know, let me just say, for example, in the Mahavamsa, which is uh, a uh, respected text uh, in the uh, Theravada tradition, there's there's stories, and in one of the stories, uh, uh, it's in there's stories that are part of an epic uh, in uh, located in Sri Lanka, you know, in ancient ancient times, uh, and there's a there's a war, and um, one of the generals uh, who purports to be a Buddhist. Uh, who's killed hundreds of thousands of people, goes to uh, a teacher and, you know, in great remorse. And he says, and the teacher says, well, don't worry, you only killed one and a half people. You know, uh, you, you killed uh, one person who had taken uh, the refuges and the five precepts and another person who had just taken the refuges. So really, other than that, they weren't Buddhists, and so they weren't real beings. That, you know, at least that's in a, in a legendary sense, that's a historical perspective. And it's, a, you know, you find this, this is a historical perspective that was manifest in uh, Imperial Way Buddhism in, uh, in Japan in the early part of the 20th century. So it's not so far-fetched. Mm -hmm. And what it misses is the interpenetration of the relative and the absolute. You don't, you can't posit the absolute without it being created from the elements of the relative. And so they, they're inseparable. I don't know if that's a criticism or an affirmation. <laughs> I hope you're okay with this. <laughs> Thank you, Azan. Thank you. Lori? Uh, okay, so I think you did a good job avoiding all the incredibly fraught <laughs> terrain that you, you know, so. Cause and effect is what happened. So we have all these ideas about what caused what happened. Right. And so karma is an idea that whatever happened to me is based on a past action right. that I did. And and it's also um, I don't even know my question, but it's like <coughs> it's like we think what goes around comes around or something. And so we it's a reason to behave properly because you can have bad consequences if you don't. And so it's to check on people. And I think that, you know, Robert Thurman says that you can't, you have to believe in future lives or you will have no reason to behave ethically. Um, you know, because we see people who do not, it doesn't come around. I mean, we see people doing bad stuff and nothing bad seems to happen to them. So, I mean, and that's what I meant about being fraud. I mean, right. how do we think about, and you know, when you said nobody's fault but mine, I mean, not everything that happens to someone is their fault. Right. And it may not even be the most powerful position to take, to take that it is your fault. No. If you take it as just what happened, just, just thus, just what it was. Nobody did, you know, no one person did it. But because it comes from a long chain all the way back to the Big Bang. But, but I mean, this is just so. Anyway, I guess what I'm doing, you didn't really open the can of worms, and I shouldn't have opened it either. Okay, so um, that was just a long critical screed by my wife, uh, which is appropriate. Um, what she's saying was, I didn't. Uh, I didn't fully unpack and answer the question. And she says, she's saying that cause and effect is just, is what happens. Uh, and I think what, what I was saying was when I say, uh, nobody's fault but mine, that's the position 
of taking full responsibility for everything that happens. Uh, and that's just a position. Uh, that's just one looking at it from one angle. And we're always just looking at it from one from one angle. So we try to be all sided. Um, there's something else that you said. Miss, you said a lot. So there's uh, something that that I'm missing that that I wanted to underscore in what you're saying, I'm, and I'm not remembering it right now. It's just. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, and I don't want to get into that. But let me say, so Robert Thurman, you know, there's an argument years ago between Robert Thurman and Stephen Batchelor, uh, and Robert Thurman's position was, if you don't believe in rebirth, then what's the motivation for moral activity? You know, and uh, Stephen Batchelor was saying essentially. If you do re believe in rebirth, then uh, you know you're always going to get another chance to to correct it. Uh, it's just like this is too theoretical for me. This just doesn't work as a as a as a motivation. You know, uh, the question to me is, and and the I think the our understanding of karma at least was presented by by Sojin and by Suzuki Roshi, and is that um, that rebirth happens moment by moment, that we are constantly being reborn according to our actions. And that is relevant to me. So when we talk about the Buddhist cosmology of, you know, you know the, the six realms, which are really just symbolic of, you know, countless realms, or six realms, human, God, fighting demon, animal, hungry ghost, hell being. I think that's it, right? Um, uh, moment by moment rebirth means we're born in those realms with each activity and each moment. We're born in some realm and the responsibility to it, the responsibility to karma is to take care of, to move forward in a way so that we don't make things worse so that's what i would say i know we're almost we're almost out of time let me take so there's two questions here which we'll end with but please be brief okay so kurt you muted here you go oh wait yeah thanks uh, uh for that talk um I, uh, one part, I, I really enjoy that colon, and one part that I like is when the student asks, you know, what if he didn't make a mistake, right? What if somebody was always right? And then the answer was, I'm going to hit you with the stick, because that, it kind of frees us up a little bit, or at least it frees me up. So on the one hand, you can't do whatever because you think you're beyond cause and effect, but on the other hand, you can't expect in in the Cohen Yamada translation, I think Moomin's comment sort of ends with um, not obscuring, not falling, a thousand mistakes, 10,000 mistakes. Right. That notion of being kind and recognizing that life is a mistake in a way. I don't know if you would speak on it now. Well, I think you've just spoken on it. And Obaku's uh, Yakujo's, uh, if he had gotten to hit uh, Omaku, it would have been a love tap. And, uh, and that was uh, Obaku to hit your teacher is a big deal. But in this case, it was an act of intimacy. It was an act of connection. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, it's not it's not an act of violence or punishment. So, uh, thank you. So, Tan, you have the last question. I'm actually going to pass. I think my question is longer than we have time for, and I will talk to you later. Okay.
Thank you. Well, thank you, everyone, and enjoy this this weather, and uh, we'll see each other very soon. <laughs>